This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 132nd edition of the program. Today is February 22nd, and before we get into the show, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors that signed up just this last week. So we have Caleb Shake Garfield, Colin Smith, Daniel Sullivan, David Watson, Fruis, Isis the Red, Jane Cullen, Joni Bretz, Joseph D'Angelo, Kevin Sai, Matthew Sluder, Negative Zero Z, Nick Fralick, Philida Hutchinson, Raquel Velas, Sean Samuel Kelly, Stephen and Thomas May. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show, you could visit humanistreport.com slash support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. So on today's episode, we've got a jam-packed show. First, we'll talk about Mueller's indictments and the aftermath of his announcement, specifically with regard to the response from the neoliberal center-left. And on that subject, we'll see how MSNBC tried to smear both Bernie Sanders and Jill Stein as Russian puppets. We'll also talk about the tragic shooting in Parkland, Florida, and how students have decided to channel their grief into activism. We'll also discuss the sellout Republican politicians who continue to refuse to address the issue of gun reform directly. Also, a former idiot congressman turned CNN commentator decided to attack these students that survived the mass shooting. I'll also talk about both left-wing and right-wing SJWs. Mitt Romney is running for the United States Senate. Ajit Pai is now being investigated for corruption by his own agency. Meanwhile, three more states are taking steps to protect net neutrality. I'll talk about that and also... Gubernatorial candidate Dennis Kucinich is taking on the oil and gas industry in the state of Ohio. And also, Bill Gates argues that the rich should pay significantly more in taxes. So all of these topics we discussed on today's episode. I hope you guys enjoy the show. Let's do it. So last week, we got a substantial update to Bob Mueller's Russia investigation, and it catalyzed a discussion on social media and in the mainstream media that I think you could really only describe as unhinged. So before we get to the adverse consequences of this announcement, I want to first establish the facts. The New York Times reports on Friday, 13 Russians were indicted by a federal grand jury in Washington on fraud and other charges. Details on their roles in a three-year campaign to disrupt American democracy have begun to emerge from the indictment, other records, interviews, and press accounts. Operating from St. Petersburg, they churned out falsehoods on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. They promoted Donald J. Trump and denigrated Hillary Clinton. They stole the identities of American citizens. They organized political rallies in several states and hired a Clinton impersonator for one event in West Palm Beach, Florida. Now, in particular, there's one man of interest. His name is Yevgeny Prigozhin, and he runs a company known as the Internet Research Agency, and this company sought to disrupt 
American politics. According to the indictment, he controlled two companies that financed the operations of the Internet Research Agency, a shadowy troll farm created in 2013. It began a so-called translator project in 2014 that targeted Americans and pursued information warfare against the United States. It employed hundreds of people and by the summer of 2016 was spending $1.2 million a month. Now, for more information about the Internet Research Agency, we turn to Brian Barrett of Wired, who explains, So-called specialists allegedly created social media accounts posing as politically active U.S. citizens, limiting their vitriol to a list of relevant topics handed down by management. They worked regular shifts, their output monitored and evaluated both for authenticity with regular feedback coming from their superiors. They received guidelines on how to maximize engagement down to the ratio of text to graphics to a video in a given post. Now, it should be noted that the Mueller indictment doesn't actually state the extent to which these Russian agents were successful at influencing our election or if they were able to successfully influence the 2016 election at all even though they tried and it does also state that no american citizen purposefully colluded with them to do so now additionally the indictment alleges that donald trump wasn't the only beneficiary of russian meddling apparently bernie sanders and jill stein also benefited. So that's basically the facts of the situation. I do think it's important that we don't remain static in our position, and we do accept that, yes, this is now evidence that Russia did try to influence the election. Now, we'll get to what they tried to do specifically in a moment, but when we often hear about the ways in which they tried to influence the election using social media, there were a lot of media outlets that actually described the level of sophistication that they used to actually influence American politics. So let's go ahead and see just how sophisticated this campaign was. So I actually have some images posted by Russian bots. So from left to right, we see a buff Bernie coloring book. So that's one of the ways they tried to gin up support for Bernie. There was also an event created on Facebook for Texans that want to secede from the United States. And also they posted a meme with Jesus arm wrestling Satan. I'm sure that that definitely had an impact on a lot of people's decisions. We also see some anti-Muslim posts, some generally pro-Trump Facebook posts, the same type of stuff you'd see from your conservative uncle. There's some anti-protester memes and more. Now, when I see that, I'm personally not inclined to believe that those memes had a substantial impact on the outcome of the election or American politics at all, because <laughs> memes, I don't think, are going to be persuasive enough to change anybody's vote. However, when it comes to Bob Mueller's decision to indict these individuals, I do think he made the right choice because they actually did commit crimes like identity theft. So I am glad that Bob Mueller found out about this, indicted them, and he also uncovered their plot to disrupt American politics because even if what they did was probably inconsequential, I do think that we shouldn't have any outside influence at all. However, to say that the media has hyped this up would be the understatement of the century because what Bob Mueller found, the Russian agents that were influencing the election, well, it doesn't really seem to be that big of a deal. And after hearing for now more than a year about just how sophisticated this campaign was to sway the election in favor of Donald Trump, well, turns out it's not that sophisticated after all. As Alexis Madrigal of The Atlantic puts it, it might be nice for Democrats and never Trumpers to believe that Russia's troll factory brought Donald Trump the 2016 presidential election, 
but no. But regardless, I do still personally think that this investigation is important. I think that Bob Mueller should continue with it, continue investigating Donald Trump to make sure that he didn't collude with Russia, continue investigating Donald Trump to make sure that there's no money laundering deals, which I think there probably is or potentially could be. And if that's the case, then let's impeach him. But what is really problematic is the response to these indictments. And this isn't something that's new. We've been seeing anti-Russian hysteria since we learned that it was a possibility that Russia might have tried to influence our election. So, for example, Senators John McCain and Jean Shaheen actually referred to what Russia did as an act of war. Yes, memes now constitutes an act of war. Senator Angus King called this the most serious attack on the United States since 9-11. The Washington Post published an article after Mueller made his announcement titled Trump is ignoring the worst attack on America since 9-11 and the hysteria doesn't stop there because representative Jerry Nadler in an interview with Chris Hayes on MSNBC literally said this well, my reaction to the news is that this is absolute proof of what we knew all along and what the president has denied namely that we were attacked uh, this is a very serious attack against the United States by a hostile foreign power an attack against uh, our election process, our, our entire governing process, um, that it, 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 we know that the attack is continuing and that uh, our intelligence agencies tell us that uh, it's going to certainly continue through the next election. And the president and the Republicans in, in the House, for that matter, refuse, refuse to do anything about uh, protecting us from an attack. Imagine if FDR uh, had denied that the Japanese attacked us at Pearl Harbor and, and didn't react. That's the equivalent. Well, it's a bit of a different thing. I mean, no, it's not. They didn't kill anyone. They didn't kill anyone, but they're destroying our democ our, our country. Do you really think it's on, you think it's on par? Not in the amount of violence, but I think in the in the seriousness, it is very much on par. We, this country exists to have a democratic system with a small d. That's what the country's all about, and this is an attempt to destroy that. So understand what's happening. Our government is trying to make us believe that Russian shitposting in favor of Donald Trump is now on par with tragedies like 9-11 and Pearl Harbor. To say that is absurd. 2,400 Americans died. More than 2,400 Americans died on Pearl Harbor. Nearly 3,000 American citizens were killed on 9-11. And to conflate Shitposting with mass death and destruction is absurd. After Pearl Harbor, American citizens had their civil liberties stomped on. Japanese Americans were literally placed in internment camps by FDR, a progressive president. This is the most economically progressive president in American history, but even he bought into hysteria and decided to completely stomp on the civil liberties and civil rights of Japanese Americans. Also, after 9-11, we passed the Patriot Act. We started multiple new wars. We're now using the NSA to spy on American citizens, and we're treating everyone as if they're just as guilty as terrorists. What's going to be the response here in this situation. Well, we already know that the government is using this to justify 
censorship. Obama created an Orwellian ministry of truth before he left office and then handed control over that to Donald Trump. Google, Facebook, and Twitter all announced plans to curtail fake news by introducing changes that affect everyone, people who don't produce fake news, namely independent media outlets. And The Intercept's Glenn Greenwald stops to ask a really important question. If Russia committed an act of war on par with Pearl Harbor and 9-11, should the United States' response be similar? He adds, all of this underscores the serious dangers many have pointed to for more than a year about why all this unhinged rhetoric is so alarming. If you really believe that Russia, with some phishing links sent to John Podesta and some fake Facebook ads and Twitter bots, committed an act of war of any kind, let alone one on par with Pearl Harbor and 9-11, then it's inevitable that extreme retaliatory measures will be considered and likely triggered. How does one justify a mere imposition of sanctions in the face of an attack similar to Pearl Harbor or 9-11? Doesn't it stand to reason that something much more belligerent, enduring, and destructive be necessary? Do you see where this is going? Do you see why the exaggerated response from Congress and the media is problematic? Now, I get it. Election meddling is bad. It's problematic. But absent from this discussion, people who have spoken out against this the most are ignoring the impact foreign lobbying has on our democracy from governments like Saudi Arabia and Israel. They ignore the impact of money and politics on our democracy. The Koch brothers are literally pledging to spend $400 million on just the 2018 midterms alone. Also, a Princeton University study published by Dr. Gillens and Page found that the United States is now effectively an oligarchy since policy outcomes are only influenced by elites and special interests and normal Americans have a statistic statistically insignificant impact on policy outcomes. And let's not even try to pretend that our country doesn't meddle in other countries' elections. We've outright overthrown other governments that we disagree with, and even Hillary Clinton herself talked about fixing Palestinian elections in leaked audio. But these so-called crusaders for democracy only care about the integrity of our democracy insofar as it suits their specific political agenda. And now, as a result of the Russian meddling kerfuffle, they're going to use this as justification to further clamp down on our civil liberties, to ramp up the new Cold War to make more money for the military-industrial complex. And why are they responding to it this way? Well, because some Russian bots posted memes. They tried to influence the election covertly by acting as pro-Trump operatives on social media. Hillary Clinton, I don't know if you all forgot about this, but her super PAC, correct the record, literally spent a million dollars paying online trolls. We need to be having a nuanced debate, but that's not happening. Our elected officials, the mainstream media, they're all jumping to hysteria to make us seem like this is literally on par with tragedies like Pearl Harbor and 9-11. I personally don't think that these memes probably had a very big impact on the outcome of the 2016 election. I think it's evident that Hillary Clinton ran one of the worst campaigns, completely bereft of policy in American history. But with that being said, if you care about this, that's fine. What you can do to make sure that we protect the integrity of the vote, especially, is call your elected official, call your representative, and urge them to move towards paper ballots that makes sure that we protect 
our democracy from these machines owned by private companies that are vulnerable. But understand that that's not even what we're alleging. Even though we know that Russia at least tried to hack into voting machines, there's no evidence that they were even able to successfully hack in, and there's definitely no evidence that votes were flipped. So to suggest that Russia stole the election or even influenced the election is a stretch, but even if you disagree with that assessment, do not let the government take advantage of you. Do not let them use this situation as a justification to restrict even more civil liberties, to censor voices that they disagree with. But unfortunately, I'm afraid it's too late. Since we learned about Bob Mueller's indictments, I discussed the potential consequences that may come to fruition as a result of all of the hysteria surrounding the announcement, like greater censorship and more warmongering, but Mueller's indictment announcement is now also being used to smear the left and ultimately discredit progressives like Bernie Sanders and Jill Stein. Now, it's really clever if you think about it, because if Bernie Sanders continues to poll as the most popular and trusted politician in the country, he'll most likely be able to steamroll any establishment Democrat the party tries to shove down our throats in 2020, even if they do rig parts of the primary process like they did last time. In fact, they rigged all of it last time. But here's what they're doing now. If they're able to use McCarthyism as a tactic to discredit Bernie since they can't compete with him on policy substance, this may actually be the establishment's go-to tactic in 2020 to maintain control of the party. In fact, mainstream media outlets are already trying to plant seeds about how Bernie Sanders may be a Russian puppet. For example, in Politico, we see the headline, Sanders silent on claim that Russians backed him in 2016. And additionally, neoliberals on Twitter are beginning to circulate this article once again from June of 2017 in order to imply that Bernie Sanders may also be a Russian puppet since he voted against another round of Russian sanctions. Now, Bernie Sanders ultimately did end up denouncing Russian election meddling, but unfortunately for him, he ended up playing right into the Democratic Party's hand. The real issue right now is how do we have a president of the United States not saying what everybody knows to be true. Russia interfered in 2016, they're going to interfere in 2018, and we have got to do everything we can to make sure that they do not undermine American democracy. Chuck, this is a huge deal, and that we don't have a president speaking out on this issue is a horror show, and we have got to bring Democrats and Republicans together, despite the president, to go forward to protect the integrity of American democracy. Right. So there you see how Bernie Sanders condemned Russian election meddling, but unfortunately for him, he didn't specifically address how Russians tried to help his campaign. As MSNBC's Ari Melber puts it, Bernie Sanders' response to Mueller indictment does not address that this Russian operation tried to help his campaign per indictment. Just as I reported, re-Trump, that is a remarkable omission. And MSNBC's Joanne Reed responds, saying particularly since his voters were the target of what amounted to a foreign-run voter suppression campaign. The Russians' goal was to get his voters to stay home, write his name in, vote for Jill Stein, or basically do anything rather than vote for Clinton. Now, putting aside the fact that Joanne Reed recently said herself unequivocally that you can't trick people into voting for who they voted for, and also putting aside the fact that Russian troll accounts actually elevated Joanne Reed herself by retweeting her more times than they retweeted Bernie Sanders by a 5 to 1 ratio, the overall implication is that Bernie Sanders, one of the most popular and trusted politicians in the country, 
might not actually be as trustworthy as we all thought because we know that the Russians tried to help his campaign and conspicuously enough, he voted against sanctions. So maybe he's a Russian puppet. That's the implication here. And the smear campaign against Bernie Sanders wasn't just restricted to social media because on MSNBC, this discussion took place. Let me ask you this about the, about the candidates who, who benefited because much of this is new. Uh, it says now in here uh, that Donald Trump was the main intended beneficiary and that Bernie Sanders was the other uh, major party candidate who was a beneficiary. Uh, neither of them have clearly stood up today and said, I don't want that help from the Russians. Please don't do that kind of thing for me. Uh, and anything that did happen, I disclaim. Uh, we hear a lot of criticism about the president, and he has a bigger job. But do you call on both Donald Trump and your colleague, Senator Sanders, to do that? Because neither have done so. I would call on anyone who has anything to do with the Russian meddling in our elections to disavow it and disown it and denounce it. When you say anyone, I, I just have to press you. It's part of my job. That includes Senator Sanders then as well. It would include any of the candidates and any of the individuals who subsequently may be named okay. as uh, unindicted co-conspirators and final, or and final unwitting cooperators. Now, that was Senator Richard Blumenthal, and even though his response was relatively vague, that MSNBC host got exactly what he wanted out of that discussion, because now you see the headline on MSNBC titled, Dem Senator Calls Out Bernie Sanders to Disavow Russian Support. So do you see what they're doing? Do you see... How they're using Mueller's announcement and McCarthyism to punch left and discredit Bernie Sanders? Not even Fox News stooped this low, but here you see the so-called liberal media outlet smearing Bernie Sanders as a Russian puppet, and they're now putting him in a position where he's forced to prove a negative and prove that he's not a Russian puppet, which is why Bernie Sanders himself is now going to learn the hard way that by pushing this anti-Russian hysteria that the Democratic Party is also pushing and using it against Trump, he played right into the Democratic Party establishment's hand, and it's now coming back to bite him in the ass because they're now using it against him good job bernie and anyone who benefited from russian trolling is now suspect anyone who's skeptical of russiagate hysteria is now suspect and i want to read to you the definition of mccarthyism mccarthyism is the practice of making accusations of disloyalty especially of pro-communist activity in many instances unsupported by proof or based on slight, doubtful, or irrelevant evidence. This is what the Democratic Party establishment is resorting to in order to smear Bernie Sanders, and as you'll see here, he's not the only one, because once they're able to successfully discredit Bernie Sanders ahead of the 2020 election, they're going to make sure that every liberal in the country has nowhere else to turn to but the Democratic Party, because they're now also using the same tactic to discredit Green Party presidential candidate Dr. Jill Stein. Because if you can't trust the most trusted politician in the country and you can't trust the green party certainly then what do you do well you have nowhere else to turn to but the democratic party this is a hurting strategy that we're seeing this is what we're seeing it may not be a concerted effort there may not be democrats in this back room saying that this is the strategy that they want to use but certainly this is what's happening
The correct response to Russians trying to elevate Bernie Sanders by posting buff Bernie memes? Well, since that ad campaign cost the Russians a measly $8.56 and only got 761 clicks, Twitter user Blueberry Morning is calling on Bernie Sanders to give Russia their $8.56 back. That's the proper response. Humor. Because the idea that Russian trolls were able to influence the 2016 election by shitposting, by posting memes, it's a joke. So if you're concerned about election meddling, then you should definitely be speaking out against what the DNC did in 2016. They brazenly rigged the primary against Bernie Sanders. You should be speaking out against voter suppression tactics used by Republicans in states with large communities of marginalized minorities. You should be speaking out against gerrymandering. You should be calling for paper ballots. But all we see is hysteria. After Bob Mueller's indictments were released, we learned that Bernie Sanders and Jill Stein were also the beneficiaries of so-called Russian election meddling. Now, I have a problem referring to it as election meddling because I don't necessarily believe that shitposting and posting memes is actually going to have any sway on the election whatsoever. But since Russian trolls made social media posts that were beneficial to Jill Stein and Bernie Sanders, well... Members of the hashtag resistance wasted no time punching left and smearing these progressives as potential Russian puppets. Now, since you can't really compete with people like Bernie Sanders and Jill Stein on the policy substance, since they're pushing for policies that are overwhelmingly popular, well, the way that you can discredit them effectively is by using McCarthyism as a tool. And I told you about how Bernie Sanders was being smeared by the hashtag resistance as a Russian puppet, but the resistance also has Jill Stein back in their sights, and they're now smearing her as a Russian puppet again. So for example, MSNBC contributor and self-proclaimed leader of the resistance, Scott Dworkin, tweeted this out about Jill Stein. Here's Jill Stein trashing the US while in Russia in December of 2015. She she attended a Russian propaganda TV gala and sat at the table with Mike Flynn and Putin. Keep in mind, there was absolutely no reason for her to be there except to become a Russian pawn. So understand that he's actually taking this McCarthyism a step further because up until this point, a lot of neoliberals just imply that she was maybe an unwitting agent of the Russian government, but he's explicitly saying that she was a knowing pawn of the Russian government. Now, she asserts that she attended this gala that was hosted to celebrate RT, and since American hosts like Lee camp support Jill Stein and the Green Party tends to get more coverage on RT than other mainstream media networks, Jill Stein was invited to this gala. Now when Scott Dworkin calls RT Russian propaganda, I'm inclined to believe him because he knows what he's talking about when it comes to propaganda since he's on the payroll of MSNBC, a network that also does propaganda but instead at the behest of multinational corporations and the Democratic Party's billionaire donors. So I don't know which is worst honestly. Actually, I do. I'll take objective progressive hosts like Lee Camp, Tom Hartman, and Ed Schultz 
over neoliberal hacks like Scott Dorkin and Joanne Reed and Rachel Maddow any day of the week. Because we get better reporting from a so-called Russian propaganda network. We get more attention to issues that really affect us, like Dakota Access Pipeline, climate change, on RT than we do on MSNBC. So, certainly, to call them propaganda, he needs to look in the mirror because he's working for a propaganda network. However, if you thought that they were just restricting their smears of Jill Stein to social media again, they didn't. So, MSNBC actually decided to bring Jill Stein on to suggest again that she was a Russian puppet and she defended herself in a way that I think was really powerful you, because you can see the passion in her eyes. She's just done. She's done with the bullshit. She's done with people saying that our votes don't belong to us. They belong to the Democratic Party. Take a look. That indictment came out and your name was mentioned in there. I do want to play a soundbite that you may have heard earlier. It was from our blast block. It's John Podesta, of course, from the Clinton campaign. And here's what he said today. Take a listen to this. They were pushing votes, just to give one example, to Jill Stein. Uh, her vote in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin was greater than the gap uh Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton in those states. So you can't prove that it did uh, affect the outcome, uh, but it certainly seems likely that it had some impact. So while we may never know precisely whether these efforts played a role in the outcome of the election, when we look at three of the states that Russia targeted, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania being among those that they targeted, uh, Pennsylvania as well, if I didn't say that, um, is it plausible that these Russian actors created enough influence that changed a few thousand votes here and there, and ultimately that could have altered the election? So let me say the assumption here is that the votes belong to Hillary Clinton and that uh, that my votes were stolen from someone else. And I think that's an insult to American voters who really deserve to choose, who made it perfectly clear that they did not like. In fact, these were the most distrusted and disliked candidates uh, in recorded history. So to try to excuse my votes as being stolen from Hillary is outrageous. But beyond that, we have data. We actually have scientific data on how people voted. And and what we know is that the people who voted for me in vast majority, over 60%, would not have voted if I wasn't there. And of the remainder who would vote, many of them would have gone to Donald Trump. So just asserting that those votes belong to Hillary is just another sign of the arrogance of the, uh, of the, of the Democratic establishment, which is really working overtime here to silence its opposition. And if you look at the smear campaign that's actually been conducted against me about being a Russian tool, when did that get started? Remember, my my trip uh, based on foreign policy, on a peace offensive, on addressing nuclear weapons and, and the You were speaking crisis. against the war Yep, while you were there. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And trying to promote uh, nuclear disarmament and uh, really substantive climate emergency action, talking not only to Russian media and officials. But on that same trip, I spoke to the deputy lead negotiator for China uh, at the climate talks. I spoke with Jeremy Corbyn, the head of the Labour uh, Party in, in the UK. So these are really critical issues. And I'd say, what's wrong with our elected look, officials I, that this is not very on their important agenda? Issue. Now, before we even talk about that segment, look at the banner that they displayed on that screen. 2016 Green Party candidate named as tool of Russia to damage Clinton. So she's now a tool of Russia. It's not that Russian trolls, generally speaking, were trying to stir shit up. Now, they're suggesting explicitly so that Jill Stein was a witting agent 
of Russian election meddling. Gary Johnson took more votes away from Donald Trump if you accept that third-party candidates take votes away from the establishment candidates. But still, with that in mind, Donald Trump rarely complained as much about Gary Johnson as neoliberal Democrats complained about Jill Stein. And let's not forget that Jill Stein literally led the charge to get recounts in crucial swing states, and even Hillary Clinton's team got on board with that because it would disproportionately benefit Hillary Clinton. I don't think that a Russian tool would do something like that. Democrats who previously voted for Obama in the Rust Belt flipped and voted for Donald Trump. But instead, the finger gets pointed at Jill Stein and her voters because even though they still voted for the liberal candidate and didn't vote for Trump, third-party voters are supposedly more problematic than the literal Democrats who flipped and voted for Trump and betrayed their own party. And let's not forget that Hillary won the popular vote but lost in key swing states she never visited. And this obviously demonstrates not that Russian election meddling ultimately sway the election, but instead shows us that Hillary Clinton ran a terrible campaign. That's obvious. And the worst part about vote shaming and the continued vote shaming we see from neoliberal Democrats is that it's insulting. It's insulting to our intelligence. They're basically saying that we're dumb. We can't think for ourselves. If we didn't support Queen Hillary, then we must be dumb. It can't possibly because we came to that decision on our own accord. It's because we're dumb and we were duped by Russia. Well, again, I've shared this on the show before. This is the specific moment when I realized I could never vote for Hillary Clinton. It was this right here that did it for me. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. Did Russia make Hillary Clinton say that? Because that's the only way you can argue that Russia influenced my vote, is if somehow Russia was able to get Hillary Clinton to say that I couldn't vote for a candidate personally that wasn't even willing to fight for Medicare for All because I actually have standards. And guess what? Now more and more Democrats are realizing that Medicare for All is a litmus test and they're getting on board with Medicare for All. This wouldn't have happened if Hillary Clinton won. Now, that's not to imply that Donald Trump is preferable to Hillary Clinton because I think most liberals, myself included, can easily see how Hillary Clinton was still the lesser of two evils even though she was still very evil. But the problem is that each election cycle, the lesser evil keeps getting more and more evil so the greater evil 10 years ago is now on par with the lesser evil now. And I wanted to break away from that cycle and vote my conscience once and for all. And since I was in a solid blue state, I decided to vote for Jill Stein, knowing I would have had to rethink my decision if I lived in a swing state. But fuck me, right? Fuck anyone that dared to take a stand against an increasingly conservative party that's supposed to be a left-wing party. You see, this is what happens. This is a really inconvenient truth that the Democratic Party doesn't want to acknowledge. If you continue to get out of touch with voters, they leave you. They don't stay. Those votes aren't guaranteed. You're not owed votes by liberals just because you are less conservative than the Republican Party. You still have to do things that your base wants you to do. And since the Democratic Party is getting more and more out of touch, that's why they're losing more, hence why they've lost more than a thousand seats in legislatures across the country. So to suggest that Jill Stein, third-party voters, Susan Sarandon, anyone who didn't fall in line and vote for Hillary Clinton is responsible for Donald Trump, that's just egregious, and you should be ashamed of yourself for vote-shaming. Now, if you're going to vote-shame anyone... Theoretically speaking, you would want to target the people who actually did flip the election. Rust Belt voters who previously voted for Obama that flipped and voted for Donald Trump. But instead, 
They target Jill Stein voters, people who didn't vote for Donald Trump. It's because the idea is to shame people who don't fall in line and vote for the establishment. Well, we're done with that. I'm going to vote my conscience, and there's nothing you can do about it. If you want to make sure that you get my vote next time, Democrats, then do better. So even though it's now been a week since the mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, it's still really difficult to digest. And I think that even though mass shootings like this occur pretty frequently in the United States, it never gets easier, ever. And it won't. And this will continue to happen until Congress takes action and codifies gun reform into law. And we don't even need reform that's sweeping. I mean, simple policy changes would at least reduce the frequency of mass shootings. Other countries like Australia have done it. Other countries like Canada have gun laws that allow for ownership, but still reduce the likelihood that mass shootings will occur. But for some reason, whenever it happens in America, you can never say the G word. There's never a right time to have a discussion about gun reform, moderate gun reform, mind you. And we definitely should never ever talk about guns ever in this country. And since the NRA spends millions of dollars lobbying, mostly Republicans every year, sellout Republicans continue to make fools of themselves by proposing solutions to things that aren't associated with gun violence. Case in point, Senator Joni Ernst says mental health care is the key to ending mass shootings, and Donald Trump also wants to reduce gun violence by addressing America's mental health crisis, not by instituting gun reform. Now, personally, I would love to see America's mental health crisis addressed once and for all. The problem is that if you actually want to make sure that mass shootings decrease, three decades worth of research has determined that diagnosable mental illness does not underlie most gun violence, and researchers say politicians that continue to perpetuate this myth are only stigmatizing people with mental health issues, and they're, of course, doing this because they don't want to address the real issue. Guns. So if it's not diagnosable mental illness, then what's another scapegoat we could potentially use in order to distract people from the real conversation we should be having about guns? I'm calling on anyone who's in a position of influence, every superintendent, every CEO of every media company that produces a video game that is violent in its nature, the movie producers who make the movies, the record producers who produce the music that we listen to, all of you. We've got to step up. We're the adults. Let's act like it. Yes, he's the adult for suggesting that violent video games and violent movies and violent music is what's encouraging people to be violent. So in order to avoid talking about the real issue, this idiot politician, the governor of Kentucky, is rehashing arguments from 2003 in order to deflect from the actual conversation we should be having about gun reform. But in actuality, studies show that violent video games don't increase violent crimes, and others show that they actually reduce one's likelihood to commit crime. So if it's not violent video games, if it's not diagnosable mental illness, then what are some other scapegoats? What are some other hypotheses that we can come up with in order to distract everyone from talking about guns? Well, Fox News' Todd Starnes has a few hypotheses that he wants to float. Another American high school was turned into a killing field, and the nation wonders why. Well, I'm going to answer that question for you, and the answer may leave you a bit unsettled. You see, I believe there is a God, but I also believe there is a devil, and I see his hand at work here. We've raised a generation to believe that truth is relative, that there is no right or wrong, and the devil smiled. They kicked God out of public schools, banned Bibles and prayer, and the devil smiled. We've destroyed the traditional family, broken homes, raising broken kids, and the devil smiled. 
There are no consequences for bad behavior, no personal responsibility, and the devil smiled. Our movies and music and games glorify violence and gore, relationships poisoned by pornography, and the devil smiled. What happened in Parkland, Florida, is about wickedness, a war with the forces of darkness, good versus evil. Our land is wounded, her people suffering. But we have turned our back on the one who promised to heal our land. The politicians and pundits would have you believe this is not about God. It's about politics or mental illness or gun control. And the devil smiled. I'm Todd Starnes. Wow. (laughs) So in his view, the causes of gun violence include the devil, moral relativism, a lack of school prayer and religion in schools, homosexuality, a lack of personal responsibility, music, movies, and video games, pornography, and Americans generally moving away from religion and turning away from God. Absent from this list, guns. You're so dumb. You are really dumb. For real. So the GOP at this point has twisted themselves into pretzels performing this much mental gymnastics to make sure that they do everything in their power to distract us from the conversation we should be having about guns. Now, thankfully, there was one GOP senator that had the courage to say the G word and actually talk about gun reform. The problem is that he's still full of shit. He's saying that, well, we can implement gun reform, but it just doesn't work. And so, hence the challenge for why it's so hard to find something that works. And there are a lot of proposals. And I'll share the ones because I've heard them before and I hear them today and I'm not diminishing them. I don't want this to be taken as because it won't work, I don't even want to hear your argument. I understand, I really do. You read in the newspaper that they used a certain kind of gun and therefore let's make it harder to get those kinds of guns. I don't have some sort of de facto religious objection to that or some ideological commitment to that per se. There's all kinds of guns that are outlawed and weaponry that's outlawed and or special category the problem is we we did that once and it didn't work for a lot of reasons one of them is there's already millions of these in the street see so we tried gun reform before we banned assault rifles and the millions of assault rifles that were already on the street they didn't just suddenly disappear and that won't happen if we do that again except australia actually did figure this out they implemented restrictions on the sale of firearm purchases and they instituted a gun buyback program and guess what happened gun homicide and suicide rates actually went down but the implication is that it won't work so why even try and that's not a straw man That's what he was arguing, even though he tried to seem as though he was extending an olive olive branch to us and say, well, I'm, I'm willing to hear it out. No, you're not. You've had many opportunities and you decided not to act even after elementary school children were slaughtered, Marco Rubio. So spare me the bullshit. We don't live in a world detached from other countries. There are solutions that have been implemented that work and would certainly at least help here. In fact, Vice laid it out in an article stating simple things like limiting magazine sizes, banning domestic abusers from owning guns, expanding federal background checks, mandating waiting periods, and allowing the CDC to study gun violence. All of these things would actually help. You don't have to abolish the Second Amendment. You don't have to outright ban guns. You don't have to confiscate guns from owners who aren't violent. All you have to do is implement these moderate reforms, and guess what would happen? We would at least reduce gun violence. 
But the problem is that the NRA is in charge of Washington, D.C. If we live in an oligarchy where money rules everything, do you think they're going to listen to citizens who overwhelmingly support moderate gun reform? Or do you think they're going to listen to their donors in the NRA who spends millions of dollars lobbying these corrupt politicians every single year? I think that the answer is evident. So every single time blood is shed, all these politicians who refuse to act, who want to distract us from the real conversation we should be having, blood is on their hands. Blood is on the hands of the NRA. So if you truly care about restricting mass shootings, limiting them, reducing violence, then gun reform is the topic we should be discussing. You can't have it both ways. You can't say you want us to reduce mass shootings and do something, but not talk about gun reform. You can't have that. You can't have it both ways. Gun reform is what reduces mass shootings. It's just a matter of if we have the political will to do that in this country, and I think the answer is evident. We don't because Congress is full of sellouts. So one thing that always frustrates me about these mass shooting events in this country, besides the tragedy itself, is how we always seem to focus more on the perpetrator than the actual victims and their survivors. But this time it was a little bit different. The survivors of the Parkland, Florida shooting, they decided to not allow their voices to be silenced. They decided to speak out. They decided that they wanted to be heard. And even though it's easy to become desensitized in these types of situations because we hear about it all the time, it's important that we face this head on, that we we don't allow ourselves to tune this out because that would be convenient and make us feel better. So I want to talk about basically what the students in this situation, the survivors have done to make their voices heard. But first, I want to talk about the tragedy itself. And I do want to share the story that one student had about the situation that was just so horrifying. So this is what she had to say. I was inside the freshman building on the first floor when we heard the shooting and it came in towards the right side of the building. Um, we have been practicing drills for months since we got back from winter break and even before that. So when it first happened, we all thought it was a drill. And as soon as it got closer and closer, we all ran towards my teacher's desk for safety. Um, I finally got under the desk after uh, about a minute of shooting and I was with another girl and my fellow classmate. And as the shooting was going on, you can hear it the glass shattering through all the halls and the bullet holes piercing the walls and everything and it was just so horrible. When you're in the moment, it's you're just praying to God that everyone knows that you love them and that you're okay. And that was the message. I mean, if these were your last messages, what did you feel so compelled to say? I wanted her to make sure that she knew that I loved her. I wanted my brother to know that, um, that I loved him. I wanted my parents to know that I loved them and I wanted all my family to know that I loved them so much. and. That, um, if anything were to happen to me, that I was, I was, I would be okay. Now I know that that was difficult to hear, but we can't turn away from the suffering because if we do, then we risk becoming complacent. So I do think it's important that we face it and realize that these are real people affected, real people who are hurt by this, and we need to use what we're feeling now to galvanize us, to actually get involved and take action. Now, one more video I want to show you is from a mother who lost her daughter. 
And this is really, really tough one to get through, but I do think her message is important. How? How do we allow a gunman to come into our children's school? How do they get through security? What security is there? There's no metal detectors. The gunman, a crazy person, just walks right into the school, knocks down the window of my child's door, and starts shooting, shooting her, and killing her. President Trump, you say, what can you do? You can stop the guns from getting into these children's hands. Put metal detectors at every entrance to the schools. What can you do? You can do a lot. This is not fair to our families that our children go to school and have to get killed. I just spent the last two hours putting the burial arrangements for my daughter's funeral, who's 14. President Trump, please do something. Do something, action, we need it now. These kids need safety now. Now I don't care how much money you've taken from the NRA. If you watched that, if you heard that grieving mother's plea and you were unmoved, you don't belong in Congress. And I'd argue that you're a bad person. You're un-American. Now, these students are emerging as some of the greatest heroes our country has seen in a really long time. And they've taken it upon themselves to speak out and stop the bloodshed. This is our opportunity to talk to President Trump, um, Governor Rick Scott, and State, uh, State Senator Marco Rubio to make sure that they know we are talking directly to them and all other members of the United States government that are being funded by the NRA to tell them now is the time to get on the right side of this. We're not going to let the 17 bullets we just took take us down. If anything, we're going to keep running and we're going to lead the rest of the nation behind us. What I'm looking for is reasonable change with the United States Congress and bills that are passed before I get back to school. Because this is not the time for inaction and debate. This is the time for discussion for, and for all people that are Americans to come together as Americans through love and compassion. This event happened on Valentine's Day. So many people lost loved ones. Our community and our nation have taken too many bullets to the heart and now is the time for us to stand up. So I will not feel safe going back to school myself until reasonable mental health care legislation and gun control legislation is passed. Because at this point, it's unacceptable. Mm. How many more students are gonna have to die and have their blood spilt in American classrooms trying to make the world a better place just because politicians refuse to take action? And since they know that politicians refuse to act specifically because they're funded by the NRA, they're choosing to call out these corrupt, sellout politicians in a multitude of ways. First of all, students and teachers are calling for a national school walkout on April 20th in order to encourage Congress to take action. Now, additionally, they organized a lion in front of the White House and protested Congress's inaction on the issue, with signs calling for the ousting of NRA stooges from Congress. And the students of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas announced a March for Our Lives event on March 24th to call for gun control. And one student, Emma Gonzalez, who you heard from in the last video, made a speech that is so powerful that I had to share it. So, take a look. We, we are going 
going to be the kids that you read about in textbooks. Not because we are going to be another statistic about mass shootings in America, but because, as just as David said, we are going to be the last mass shooting. If the president wants to come up to me and tell me to my face that it was a terrible tragedy and how it should never have happened and maintain telling us how nothing is going to be done about it, I'm going to happily ask him how much money he received from the National Rifle Association. In the one and one half months in 2018 alone, that comes out to being $5,800. Is that how much these people are worth to you, Trump? If you don't do anything to prevent this from coming, from continuing to occur, that number of gunshot victims will go up and the number that they are worth will go down. And we will be worthless to you. To every politician who is taking donations from the NRA, shame on you. was as threatened as us, would your first thought be, how is this going to reflect on my campaign? Which should I choose? Or would you choose us? And if you answered us, will you act like it for once? You know what would be a good way to act like it? I have an example of how not to act like it. In February of 2017, one year ago, President Trump repealed an Obama-era regulation that would have made it easier to block the sale of firearms to people with certain mental illnesses. I don't need a psychologist, and I don't need to be a psychologist to know that repealing that regulation was a really dumb idea. Yeah. Chuck Grassley of Iowa was the sole sponsor on this bill that stops the FBI from performing background checks on people adjudicated to be mentally ill, and now he's stating for the record, well, it's a shame that the FBI isn't doing background checks on these mentally ill people. Well, duh, you took that opportunity away last year. The people in the government who were voted into power are lying to us, and us kids seem to be the only ones who notice and are prepared to call BS. Companies trying to make caricatures of the teenagers nowadays, saying that all we are is self involved and trend obsessed and they hush us into submissions when our message doesn't reach the ears of the nation, we are prepared to call BS. Politicians! Politicians who sit in their gilded house and senate seats funded by the NRA telling us nothing could have ever been done to prevent this, we call BS! We say that tough, they say that tougher gun laws do not decrease gun violence. We call BS! They say a good guy with a gun stops a bad guy with a gun. We call BS! They say guns are just tools like knives and are as dangerous as cars. We call BS! No, they say that no laws could have been able to prevent the hundreds of senseless tragedies that have occurred. We call BS! That us kids don't know what we're talking about, that we're too young to understand how the government works. We call BS! If you agree, register to vote. Contact your local Congress people. Give them a piece of your mind. That was a call to action. No more beating around the bush. No more remaining complacent. No more trying to propose alternate solutions. That won't actually stop gun violence in America. No more bullshit 
we fight now and we make sure that this issue remains elevated so we continue paying attention to it we continue putting pressure on politicians and if you still after hearing from those students feel unmoved you'd feel a lot different if you were the mother in that video or if you feared for your life like the 17 year old girl in that video or one of the students will be traumatized for the rest of their lives because a madman was able to legally purchase a weapon he used to take out his former classmates with. You'd feel different if you were sitting in the hospital right now because you were shot fighting for your life. You would feel different. So we need to actually have empathy. And we have to fight, not just because it's the right thing to do, but we have to fight even if we weren't affected because we need to make sure that we end this type of suffering. It's something we can actually control. We can't control a lot of things, but we can control this. And the answer is simple. Moderate gun control reform. Again, we're not calling for the abolition of guns and gun ownership. Moderate reform will make a difference. We just have to act, and since politicians won't act, these students are taking it into their own hands, and they're going to force them to act. And that, to me, I find really inspiring, because they're taking this tragedy, and they're turning it around, and they're making sure that no other student in this country has to fear for their lives ever again. So I absolutely commend the bravery of these students, and I want them to know that we're right alongside them. We're going to be fighting with them, because this is, this is too important to ignore. If you're not fed up at this point, then I don't know what to say. The survivors of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, are using this tragedy to speak out, to affect change, to make sure that no student in America has to fear for their life or fight for their life in their school, a place where they should be safe. So a lot of people feel inspired by these students because they're turning tragedy into something bigger. They're using this as a launching point for their activism. However, one former congressman and CNN contributor named Jack Kingston decided to take it upon himself to attack these students, literally. So he responded to an article about how students are planning a walkout to protest America's lax gun laws, saying this on Twitter about the students. Oh, really? Quote, students are planning a nationwide rally, not left-wing gun control activists using 17-year-old kids in the wake of a horrible tragedy? Hashtag Soros, hashtag Resistance, hashtag Antifa, hashtag DNC. So this was obviously an idiotic comment to make, not just because it's insensitive, but because the anti-gun lobby in America pales in comparison to the pro-gun lobby. We often focus on the NRA, but... There are other very large pro-gun organizations like Gun Owners of America who have a lot of lobbying power, who contribute to politicians. To, so to suggest that the anti-gun lobby could even do something like this on a grand scale just shows how out of touch you are and how ignorant you are. But again, to say this, to directly imply that these students don't just care about the issue and that they're paid protesters, it's just fucking despicable and dumb. So he was on CNN to talk about this since he is a CNN contributor. And thankfully, CNN actually called him out. Do you think that, Jack? You think? You're serious? Allison, you think these kids let, aren't acting say, on their own volition? Allison, I think it's a horrible tragedy. And I'm heartbroken that young uh, people have gone through this. And I hope that it never happens again. Uh -huh. But I also know that their sorrow 
can very easily be hijacked mm -hmm. by left-wing groups but do you who think it have has an agenda. I, I, well, let's ask ourselves, do we really think that, and, and I say this sincerely, do we really think 17-year-olds on their own are going to plan a nationwide rally? I, I would say to you very plainly that uh, organized groups that are out there like mm -hmm. George Soros are always ready to take the charge mm -hmm. and it's kind of like instant rally, instant protest yeah. and hey, those Jack, groups are ready to take it, that, Jack, take I, it to I'm the I'm sorry, streets. I have to correct you. I was down there. I talked to these kids. These kids and, were what, Jack? These kids were wildly motivated. I talked to these kids before they knew the body count of how many of their friends had been Allison. killed. No, Jack, no one had talked to them yet. They okay. hadn't been indoctrinated by some left-wing group. They well, Allison, were motivated from okay. what they saw and what Allison, they endured I don't doubt, during that I don't, ordeal. I don't doubt their sincerity. Yes, you I, do, I'm Jack. I, I absolutely know these children are heartbroken, but I also know they probably do not have the logistical ability Jack, to plan a nationwide rally silly. without it being hijacked by groups that already had the pre-existing yeah, anti-gun agenda. Jack, it's just silly. They're already doing oh, it. They're on buses well, okay, going to the Allison, state legislature today. And, They're 17 years old. And, they can figure this out. But and they, they have the money for the bus, and they're ready to go. I mean, I just have a hard time wow. believing it. Now they go on to debate. He goes on to blame violent video games and um, to suggest that mental health is really the issue. And really, this is some Alex Jones-level conspiracy bullshit right here. Anytime there's a protest ever on the left, what do Republicans do? Well, since they're afraid of grassroots, they suggest that that's not really grassroots, that's AstroTurf. But really, when we see AstroTurf, it occurs from right-wing companies. Companies like internet service providers, AT&T, Fidelity Communications, who create these AstroTurf campaigns to make legislators think that Americans are against net neutrality when really the overwhelming majority of the country supports net neutrality. So we don't have to resort to AstroTurf because we have the real grassroots on our side. Right-wingers and multinational corporations, since they're not looking out for our best interests, they have to resort to AstroTurf since they don't have people power behind them. So anytime... There is a left-wing protest. This is what they do. They did it for the Women's March, which is ridiculous. There were millions of people across the country, and they suggested that George Soros paid every single one of them to march. Well, I had people and friends who attended the Women's March. <laughs> so I know that they're not paid by George Soros because they're not in contact with George Soros. George Soros is not that powerful. Yes, he buys politicians and he's a problem, and we have to fight him from the left, but to suggest that all of these protests are fake and funded by George Soros or Antifa or the DNC is absurd, and it makes them look like idiots. But thankfully, I don't even really have to spend that much time debunking what this idiot said. One, because CNN called him out for it, and two, because the students who survived this tragedy actually decided to speak out. And what they said was brilliant. You were listening to former Congressman Jack Kingston there, suggesting that somehow, I guess, you've been co-opted, you've been brainwashed, I guess, by left-wing activists. What's your response? Not a chance. These students are motivated. These students are intelligent. The only um, motivation they have is uh, making change. They haven't been contacted by uh, any operatives. They, they are doing this on their own with the support of their families and the people that love them. Brandon, what's it like when you hear people say, you guys don't know what you're doing, you must be having help from somebody else? I think it's very despicable. 
that he would even have the audacity to say that. Um, young people all across this country and over the world should feel that they have the power to make things right. And especially in the wake of a tragedy, we really show who we truly are. So to say that just because we're young, we can't make a difference is not right. And he should apologize for that. Delaney, have you been hearing this? Absolutely. I think with any movement, there comes this amount of hating and trolling and people telling you that you're just a little kid, you don't know what you're talking about, or you're a puppet. But ultimately, we have to, we have to move past all of that because the amount of support that we're getting is so overwhelming compared to everything else. So those students have more class than a former congressman. And I can't help but ask, I'm sorry, why does CNN have him on their payroll as a contributor? Like, I'm not implying that he should be fired because he said something stupid, but I'm asking why he was hired ever to begin with. I mean, they also hired Corey Lewandowski. We had MSNBC recently hire Hugh Hewitt. Why do you hire someone who's a complete buffoon and lunatic? And then you act outraged when they say something stupid. I know that that host didn't hire him personally, but I mean, if you keep hiring these idiots, then you are constantly making sure that Americans hear their message. And even though most people will hear what that idiot said and think, oh, well, he's a dumbass, let's just dismiss everything he says from now on, there are some Americans who buy his bullshit, who buy what he's selling. And again, this was a former congressman who said something that dim-witted. Let me, let me tell you this. If you've ever doubted whether or not you are capable of running for Congress and winning, that idiot, that dumbass right there who said something so insensitive, so stupid, so bereft of logic, he won. If he can win, anyone can win. So again, I'm really glad that the students were able to defend themselves. I'm glad that CNN gave them that opportunity. And I'm glad that for the first time in a long time, CNN did their job and they called this idiot out because that is one of the dumbest things I've heard. And we've heard a lot of dumb hypotheses about what caused gun, you know, the, the mass shooting and what causes mass shootings. Todd Starnes suggested it's the devil and gay people <laughs> and pornography. We have uh, the Kentucky governor blaming video games. So we're hearing a lot of stupidity, but I think this, this stands out. It tops all of that. This is the dumbest thing I've heard. So we keep getting more and more good news every single week about the fight to save net neutrality at the state level. And this week is no exception because multiple states have taken substantial action, or at least are headed in the right direction, to make sure that net neutrality is protected. And the state that made the most progress this week is the state of Vermont, because their governor, Phil Scott, joined four other governors in the country to unilaterally protect net neutrality. Vermont Business Magazine reports, Governor Phil Scott on Thursday signed Executive Order Number 02-18, which directs the Agency of Administration to ensure that all state contracts with internet providers include net neutrality protections. The Democratic leadership welcomed with reservation the governor's order, but will continue to push for a more comprehensive net neutrality law. The executive order will apply to all state agencies, departments, commissions, boards, or other administrative units within the executive branch that have the authority to enter into contracts. It is issued under the governor's constitutional authority to conduct business for the state and implements the policy direction expressed in Senate Bill S-289, which recently passed out of the state Senate. I do not support the Federal Communications Commission's decision to repeal net neutrality, but we can take steps here 
in Vermont to uphold these values while ensuring compliance with federal law, said Scott. While the legislature is working on additional action to protect net neutrality here in Vermont, we thought it was important to act quickly with an executive order that ensures Vermont's position and commitment to protecting the state's access to the internet is clear. Now, Vermont isn't alone in taking action because Washington State also did something that is very bold. Ryan Blethen of the Seattle Times reports, a bill instituting regulations that keep internet service providers from interfering with websites and content going through their networks overwhelmingly passed Washington's House of Representatives. House Bill 2282, which passed 93-5, to is a set of regulations that requires ISPs to treat all websites equally, preventing them from creating fast lanes for those who can afford to pay for them. The bill, sponsored by Drew Hansen of Bainbridge Island, also prohibits service providers from throttling broadband speeds or slowing down websites or content they deem shouldn't reach consumers at the same speed as other sites, applications, services, or content. The bill also includes a requirement that service providers disclose information regarding their performance and commercial terms. Now that's great. Kudos to the Washington State Legislature. Hopefully it passes and the governor signs it into law. Now we're also seeing movement in Oregon as well with regard to net neutrality. Eric Tegethoff of Oregon News Service reports a bill in the state house aims to restore net neutrality as a priority in Oregon after the Federal Communications Commission repealed the policy late last year. House Majority Leader Jennifer Williamson said she will add a net neutrality amendment to House Bill 4155 legislation to stop internet service providers from sharing or selling customers' personal information. Now, Oregon's legislature is currently controlled by Democrats. So this is probably going to pass, and even though we have a Democratic governor, I am skeptical, because she's been silent on the issue, and she is in bed with Comcast. So if she signs it into law, I'll be pleasantly surprised, um, but I'm skeptical. I don't know what she's going to do, so certainly, I think it's really important that we all track the progress we're making at the state level, in our own states especially, and make sure that if your lawmakers are proposing something that will protect net neutrality and save the internet, you call them and you urge other lawmakers to get on board with this and thank your representative. If you have someone who's representing you that's on board with this already, I think it's important that we use positive reinforcement as a tool at our disposal because if we let them know that we're satisfied with the job that they're doing and we approve of what they're doing to save the internet, then they're more inclined to listen to us. Now, the only reason why lawmakers are still paying attention to this issue months after the FCC voted to repeal net neutrality is partially because the repeal order hasn't actually taken effect yet, but most importantly, it's the activism. It's the pressure that you've put on lawmakers to make sure that this issue doesn't just get ignored. Because what happens in America is that there's this big event, we talk about an issue for a while, and then it goes away. We brush it aside and forget about it. And that's not really to our fault. It's because a lot of things are constantly happening. The news cycle moves fast and we tend to move on from issues really fast. But when it comes to net neutrality, we've seen this sustained level of pressure on lawmakers that I haven't seen for an issue before. And I think that's because you guys are more mobilized than you've ever been. And it's because we have to be. We can't save net neutrality by sitting idly by and hoping and wishing that our lawmakers do the right thing. We just can't. So we have to put pressure on them. And since we have been putting pressure on them, they're actually listening to us. Not all of them. In fact, the overwhelming majority are ignoring us. But certainly, if you continue to keep pressure on lawmakers, 
Something's going to happen. Some of them will budge. And that's good. And when those lawmakers budge, when states decide to protect net neutrality, other states follow suit. I mean, all it took was one governor to speak out in Montana, and then the New York governor decided to protect net neutrality. And then state after state, it seems like every single week, we have a new governor enforcing net neutrality unilaterally. We have state legislatures discussing ways to protect net neutrality. Now, again, lawmakers are disinclined to pass legislation protecting net neutrality because the FCC's repeal order it blocked states from carrying out their own net neutrality rules. But if a lawmaker cites that as a reason why they're not getting on board with legislation to protect net neutrality, I think that's a cop-out because this will be a battle that's waged on in the courts. Ajit Pai is going to have to defend his decision to repeal net neutrality in the courts. So to just sit by and not do anything, I think that is a cop-out. It shows that that lawmaker is terrified. If you really care about net neutrality, even if... That law you passed may not hold up in court. You still got to pass it. You still got to fight for it. Because if enough states pass legislation protecting net neutrality, that just bolsters our already good argument to save the internet. So this is fantastic news. Please keep the pressure on your lawmakers. Contact your state senator, your state representative, and of course, your representative in Congress, because none of this could be possible without your activism. So I think it's evident to most people that I've been following along with the net neutrality issue that FCC Chairman Ajit Pai is perhaps one of the most corrupt, if not the most corrupt, FCC head ever. Now, that perception that the public has of him that he's corrupt, I mean, it's widespread. I don't really know anyone who cares about net neutrality that doesn't think he's in bed with internet service providers who are trying to profit more by screwing us over. Now, he is being sued by multiple states. The attorney general's office in New York is investigating him. And now, unfortunately for Ajit Pai, his own agency is looking into him potentially being corrupt because of policy changes he made at the behest of a company he's in bed with. Carl Bode of Vice reports FCC boss Ajit Pai is being investigated by his own agency over potential corruption allegations. The already unpopular agency boss has been on a tear in recent months, gutting decades-old media consolidation rules designed to protect consumers and the nation's media markets from any one broadcaster becoming too powerful. Pai's efforts arrived not coincidentally at the same time Sinclair Broadcasting Group is attempting to to acquire Tribune Media as part of a $3.9 billion mega merger. It's a deal a bipartisan chorus of critics say would demolish media diversity, resulting in Sinclair owning more than 230 local stations across 72% of the United States. Given criticism of Sinclair for its often distorted and inaccurate news reporting, consumer advocates say the deal would have a profoundly negative impact on the quality and diversity of media discourse, as well as already dwindling competition in the space. Without Pi's assistance on this front, the Sinclair merger would have been impossible. Now, the New York Times indicates that the FCC's Inspector General has launched an investigation into whether Pi acted inappropriately as he rushed to dismantle media consolidation rules. Late last year, the top internal watchdog for the FCC opened an investigation into whether Mr. Pi and his aides had improperly pushed for the rule changes and whether they had timed them to benefit Sinclair, the report states. It was unclear the extent of the Inspector General's investigation or when it might conclude, but the inquiry puts a 
spotlight on Mr. Pai's decisions and whether there had been coordination with the company, said the Times. It may also force him to answer questions that he has so far avoided addressing in public. The inquiry joins a rotating crop of other investigations into Pai's behavior during his first controversial year as agency head. A GAO inquiry is also looking into why Pai's FCC appears to have made up a DDoS attack in order to try and downplay massive public opposition to the agency's repeal of popular net neutrality rules. Pai's agency is also facing numerous lawsuits over allegations that Pai ignored the public as he rushed to repeal those rules. New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman penned an open letter to Pai last year, effectively accusing him of blocking a law enforcement inquiry into the numerous bogus comments that flooded the agency in support of its unpopular repeal. Pai has frequently made light of concerns he's too cozy with the giant corporations he's supposed to be holding accountable, and while these investigations and lawsuits may or may not call in evidence of corruption or violation of agency rules, Pi's policies alone leave few questions about where his loyalties lie. Yeah, that pretty much says exactly what we all feel. Um, look, we all know that he's corrupt, but I think that the question is, how effective has he been really at covering up his tracks? And I'm inclined to believe that he hasn't been very effective at covering his tracks because... He's done a lot of things that rouse suspicion. So, for example, he's not complying with requests from the New York Attorney General's office to hand over information. He's ignored Freedom of Information Act requests. So, if you really covered your tracks well, you would comply with these requests because, I mean, you would have you would have hidden corruption. But as we learned last week, he won't even release details about the skit he created with the Verizon executive. So Gizmodo tried to obtain details about the skit that he made with them just to really see how deep that relationship goes and if they talked about more than the skit potentially. And um, he refused to even turn over that. So I'm inclined to believe that he is ignoring all of these FOIA requests and not giving us information because he's trying to clean up his mess. He's trying to clean up this mess that he made and cover his tracks more because he's been very sloppily corrupt. So... For him to be just brazenly corrupt and for us to find a quid pro quo, I think that's a possibility. I don't know. I mean, it's evident that he's potentially obstructing justice now by constantly and repeatedly rejecting any information requests that the New York Attorney General's office has submitted. I mean, even Eric Schneiderman's office has accused him of blocking law enforcement from doing their job. So for him to be investigated by his own agency for corruption, can they find something? Potentially. But right now, we know he's scrambling to make sure that they don't find what we're most likely going to find. So I don't know if this will actually lead to anything, but I am happy that it's getting done because Ajit Pai, I mean, to say that he's the worst FCC boss ever is an understatement, but I think he may be up there with one of the worst agency bosses in the history of this country. He's that bad. He's so brazenly corrupt that he flaunts it in front of our faces. And it's not like... He got an office and just has, you know, been slowly chipping away at all the progress we made with regard to net neutrality. He repealed it the first year he became FCC chairman. He dismantled a lot of Obama-era regulations that we fought for after Obama decided to appoint a Comcast lobbyist to the FCC. So we fought him and we finally got him to our side. 
And he did come to our side after, you know, kicking and screaming. We had to drag him, but we got a lot of regulations that we've been fighting for for years. And now Ajit Pai got in there and like that, got rid of all of them. So are we going to find something? I don't know, but this investigation is absolutely warranted. And I have no doubt that he's corrupt. It's just a matter of whether or not we can find the evidence to prove that he's corrupt and potentially kick him out, impeach him at a minimum, potentially indict him because corruption, quid pro quos, that's not acceptable. We know it's happening, but we've got to find the evidence. And I think that this investigation is absolutely necessary. I've long maintained that the SJW boogeyman has been a scare tactic propped up by so-called free speech crusaders on the right for nothing more than views and clicks. But at the same time, even though I think that the SJW hysteria we often hear about is overblown, I've never been inclined to say that SJWs, generally speaking, aren't a problem. Because I do think that free speech is important and language policing is not a way that we should be moving forward as the left. I think it's problematic. Now, with that being said, there's also right-wing SJWs that are problematic. However, there was a video published by Now This that encouraged people to stop using a specific word because it's racist. And I think that this is really one of the main examples that demonstrates why SJWs are still a problem, even if they may not be as big as a problem as people like Dave Rubin want us to believe. Stop saying marijuana. Why? because it's racist ass The term was used to knock on people of color and their devilish ways. Now, the word itself isn't inherently racist, but it was used by American prohibitionists to exploit racism and xenophobia. So by using the M word, you're ignoring a long history of oppression against Mexican immigrants and African Americans. Let's go on a quick history lesson, shall we? Weed has been consumed by the American elite since the 1840s. It was even sold over the counter as medication to treat insomnia, migraines, and rheumatism. But it didn't become controversial until the early 1900s, when millions of Mexicans migrated to the US following the Mexican Revolution. With them, they brought marijuana, and their customs to smoking it casually and regularly. But the term was then popularized in the 1930s by this man. Harry Anslinger was the director of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics from 1930 to 1962. Now, Anslinger believed that marijuana influenced black and brown people to commit murder and other violent crimes, which is ridiculous because all I see people do when they smoke is sit on their couch, watch TV, eat munchies, and fall asleep. So his solution was to launch a vicious propaganda campaign against marijuana and associate it with all inferior races and social deviants. Anslinger traveled across the country to convince people that marijuana was something that was invading the US. He even pronounced the drug as marijuana to make it sound Hispanic and foreign and scary to white people. The campaign played on through 1937 when Anslinger successfully pushed Congress to pass the Marijuana Tax Act, which made the drug illegal at a federal level. Since then, marijuana has been associated with the notion of addiction or living a lesser life. Instead of a herbal medicine that seems to help people with several health conditions, or simply as a way to just relax after a long, hard day's work. You might argue that marijuana lost its prejudice bite years ago, but you can't ignore the racial implications of its introduction to the American lexicon. Besides, nothing has changed. This whole conversation is actually very deja vu. We're still trying to fight the negative stigma that clings onto a plant 
in 2018, all because of white men such as Jeff Sessions and Steve Alford who keep making terrible remarks when trying to make marijuana the culprit for crime. Organizations that advocate for legalization and even some media publishers, including Now This, have stopped using marijuana to describe anything that contains THC or any other cannabinoid. So what's the right word to use? Cannabis. Just call it by its Latin name and you'll not only be technically correct, but also politically correct. Okay, so he describes use of the word marijuana as, quote, racist as fuck because the term was used to knock on people of color for their devilish ways. So by using that word, you're ignoring a history of exploitative ways the word was used to demonize marginalized minorities. Okay, so when I hear his argument, and I tried to be objective as I possibly could be, that was not a persuasive argument. It wasn't. A legitimate argument would be marijuana was used to breed hatred against people of color, but here's the truth. Everyone smokes marijuana, so it should not be stigmatized, and it should be embraced since everyone does it, and we should make sure that people of color aren't locked up more for it than their white peers, even though their white peers smoke marijuana just as much, if not more, than people of color. Now, I'm not just covering this because I disagree with his argument. I'm also covering this because this is an example of how language policing on the left is not only lazy activism, but it's also discrediting the left. If you really care about social justice issues, this is not the way to fight for social justice issues. If you really want to speak out, then you should be fighting to legalize marijuana, not trying to police what people say with regard to language used to refer to cannabis. Now, on a podcast I watched recently with Ethan and Hila Klein, who are generally liberal people but don't really tend to discuss politics too often, they talked about this clip, and in their mind, people on the far right are justified in their obsession of SJWs because this wave of political correctness is ultimately going to lead to the destruction of free speech. And this is what they said about that clip we just watched. Now, keep in mind, these are average people, and this is the impression they get when they hear arguments like that. Bro, let's <laughs> let's roll an M-word. Let's roll a... What do you... What, what, how are you altering our language, you loser? Hey, don't say <laughs> Can that. you say the L-word, please? <laughs> you L-word! Like that, but that's what they're transforming. <laughs> like, we're losing the ability to actually communicate. Like, in 1984... This is what Jordan Peterson, he's so afraid of the far left because they're in, they're taking away our our use of words. They're trying to control how we talk. We're in 1984, to... they're editing the language and removing all mm -hmm. the expression out of it and boiling yeah. it down to as little words as possible. And that's what they're trying to do in a way. We don't have any words left. It's all just going to be L word, M word. So that, in my view, is how the average person feels when they see videos like this. Not only are you not doing real activism... Not only are you language policing, which is harmful, but you are unwittingly propping up anti-SJW creators on the right. You're giving them a platform because you release these types of videos and then they respond to it. And then that makes the aggregate left look bad when in actuality, most people on the left are not trying to police language. We're fighting for real social justice in the form of policy that legalizes marijuana nationwide. We're fighting for social justice so people of color no longer have to worry about getting pulled over or killed by police officers in their community. We're fighting for social justice so that way transgender people can use the bathroom of their choice because we live in a free country. And I'm not talking about this because I want to imply that SJWs are this huge problem that the right makes it out to be. This video is just one video. That individual is not a representative 
of the left. And the reality is that there's people on the right that are just as easily triggered for other benign things that they shouldn't be offended by. So anytime they feel like their religion, for example, is being made fun of, anytime you mention a transgender person's right to use the bathroom or even fucking exist, they get triggered just as easily as any social justice warrior on a college campus. But to focus on language policing, to create new standards as to what we consider appropriate speech, you are hurting the left and empowering the right. You are having the opposite consequence. I know that you want to help, but you're not helping. This doesn't help at all. This helps no one. Zero people's lives were improved as a result of you telling us not to say marijuana. In fact, I think this hurt people because, again, now right-wingers are going to use this as a reason to discredit the left. It's why people like Jordan Peterson are becoming increasingly popular. People like Ben Shapiro are becoming increasingly popular because even though they'd freak out if you offended their religion, they can use this example to say, look how ridiculous the left is. So stop empowering them, stop trying to police people's language, and actually fight for real social justice if you care about social justice as much as you say you do. It's ridiculous to me. So on a recent episode of Celebrity Big Brother, former White House aide and contestant Omarosa discussed why she believed Mike Pence was less preferable than Donald Trump in the event Donald Trump were to be impeached. Now her reasoning was that even though she's a religious person herself, she believes that Mike Pence is kind of out there because he literally believes that Jesus talks to him. If Mike Pence literally believes that Jesus is talking to him, that's not religion. That's just a level of delusion that's terrifying for someone with that much power to have. Now, this catalyzed a discussion on The View where Joy Behar basically echoed that same sentiment because it's true. And Fox News didn't take too kindly to what she said. In fact, there were a lot of right-wing SJWs who were triggered by that discussion that they had on The View. The panel on The View mocking Vice President Mike Pence for saying that he talks to Jesus. Watch. I think when you have a Mike Pence that now sort of puts this religious veneer on things and calls people values voters, I think we're in a dangerous situation. I'm a faithful person, but I don't know that I want my vice president, um, well, you know, speaking in tongues and having Jesus around. speak like to Like I him. said before, I don't know if I want it's that. It's one thing to talk to Jesus. It's another thing when Jesus talks to you. It's called mental illness, if I'm not correct. But no, I'm, I'm hearing voices. Pastor Robert Jeffress is a senior pastor at First mm. Baptist Church and a faith advisor to President Trump. Pastor Jeffress, thanks for coming on this morning. I'm, I'm sure that you're having a reaction just hearing that again. What is it? Well, look, let's just go ahead and say what we all know is true. If Joy Behar had attacked a devout Muslim for his faith, ABC would have fired her in a nanosecond. But you know, to the left, when it comes to attacking conservative Christians, it is always open season. And you know, I'm often asked, why is it that evangelicals supported a secular candidate like Donald Trump by the largest margin in history? This is the reason. Christians are tired of being bullied for their faith in the public square. They wanted an administration who would respect rather than ridicule their beliefs. And in many ways, the election of Donald Trump and Mike Pence was a reaction against these kind of despicable attacks upon people's faith. Why do you think that they have such a problem with the vice president and his beliefs? Well, scratch beneath the surface or read what they've said in the past, and it's very clear. 
Mike Pence has committed the unpardonable sin when it comes to the left, and that is he still maintains the personal belief that marriage should be between a man and a woman. And look, Everybody doesn't agree with that perspective. He understands that, but you can hardly call that an extreme perspective when it's the belief of the three major world religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, which have taught that for years, thousands of years. And look, this once again shows the hypocrisy of the left. The left cries for tolerance, tolerance, and yet they are the most intolerant people when it comes to beliefs with which they disagree. <laughs> you could almost measure the butthurt in that video. So he states, if Joy Behar had attacked a devout Muslim for his faith, ABC would have fired her in a nanosecond. But for the left, when it comes to attacking conservative Christians, it's always open season. First and foremost, if anyone from any religion claims that they hear a voice talking to them that's God, that's not religion. That, that means there's an underlying mental illness that's happening that needs to be addressed. And this argument that the left is more hard on Christians than Muslims is incredibly disingenuous because evangelical Christians make up the overwhelming majority of the country and they also have a substantial amount of sway over policy because they control every single branch of government. So if you're literally pushing for and implementing policies that affect all of our lives, then be prepared to face a lot of backlash. We don't have Muslims who are in there pushing their religion on us, hence why we focus more on Christians in the United States. Context matters. If you lived in Saudi Arabia and you were an atheist, of course, you'd focus more on Muslims there than Christians. If you lived in Egypt, you would focus more on Muslims there if you were an atheist than their Christian minority. It's just because the context is different. So to say that, oh, well, we're, we're harder on Christians. Well, if you're going to shove your religion down our throats via policy, yeah, we're going to speak out. Now, he also states here, Christians are tired of being bullied for their faith in the public sphere. Nobody is trying to bully you. You're the ones trying to impose your fundamentalist views on everyone else. If you didn't do that, then we wouldn't be, quote, bullying you and pushing back. But really, he wants us to shut up and take it as he shoves his religion down our throats. No, it doesn't work that way. You can't claim that you're being bullied if we're pushing back against your imposition of your religious views on us. That's not bullying. That's just us defending ourselves. But since we're defending ourselves, we're the bullies. He also states that the left doesn't like Mike Pence because he still maintains the personal belief that marriage should be between a man and a woman. And he also says you can hardly call it an extreme perspective when it's a belief of the three major world religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, which have taught that for years. Well, first of all, I don't care what any religion says about gay marriage. Religion should not be used to justify bigotry. And again, Mike Pence could be against gay marriage all he wants to be. I don't care. But it doesn't stop there. He's not just personally opposed to gay marriage. He actually tries to codify discrimination against LGBT people into law. So when he was the governor of Indiana, he literally signed a bill into law that made it legal for businesses to be able to discriminate against members of the LGBT community. So his personal beliefs may be inherently wrong and bigoted, but that's not my concern. You could believe anything you want to believe personally. I don't care. But what I care about is when those beliefs leave his head and they get codified into law, when they end up becoming policies that screw over the LGBT community. And clearly, since Mike Pence is Donald Trump's VP, 
He's having an impact on Donald Trump, who wasn't really that anti-gay. He was anti-gay, he was bigoted, but he wasn't vociferously anti-gay like Mike Pence. And now Donald Trump's administration is rolling back protections for the LGBT community. He's making sure that Christian doctors are able to refuse service to gay and lesbian patients if they morally object to homosexuality or someone's gender identity. So his antiquated beliefs aren't just staying in his head. It's not just a personal belief anymore. It's affecting policy. It's affecting people's lives. So that's why the ladies on The View were having a discussion about it. It's because it's a legitimate conversation to be having about the vice president of the United States. They're not talking about Jenny in South Carolina who wears her cross every day and reads her Bible. We don't give a shit about people like that. We care about your religion when it starts to affect policy. Get it through your head. He also says the left calls for tolerance and they're the most intolerant when it comes to the beliefs with which they disagree. Right, so even though the left is more tolerant than the right, there are limits to our tolerance. So I tolerate the fact that you may have an antiquated belief about gay marriage. You may disagree with homosexuality, but I don't have to tolerate you discriminating against me and making sure that your worldview is codified into law. That's what I don't have to tolerate. You never have to tolerate intolerance. Tolerance has limits. So even though you may be inclusive of other people who you disagree with, that doesn't mean you just have to lay back and allow them to steamroll you and take away your rights. But this pastor that we saw on Fox News, he wasn't the only right-wing snowflake who was triggered by this because Tommy Lahren, one of the right's biggest hypocrites and snowflakes herself, also decided to voice just how offended she was. Well, who is she to judge how often our vice president should speak to his Lord and Savior? Who is she to mock anyone for their faith? These people are really, really amazing to me because they preach day in and day out about tolerance and love. Tolerance and love for everyone right. except conservative Christians. And then they can mock you and it's funny and you're something that they can use for their jokes around the table and they can all cackle about it. It's really disgusting, not surprising, but disgusting. If you want Joy Behar to be quiet, just say that maybe someone is speaking to Allah and Allah talks back. She would not be mocking that. No, of course not. And that's exactly the thing with these ladies is that in the next segment, they'll probably talk about how horrible our president and our vice president is. But in the segment prior to that, they mock Christians. Again, they live in a world where men can be women, women can be men. But if you're a conservative Christian, you have a mental illness. There's something wrong with the women at that table for well, sure. You know, I just felt sorry for her as a Christian. Obviously, she doesn't know Christ. She doesn't know the joy and the love that, that he provides to so many people. And so it just made me feel sorry for I think so she's Jewish, you... isn't she? <laughs> <laughs> So again, we see the same arguments being made here that we'd have no problem if a Muslim claimed that Allah was talking to them. Not true. Uh, she also implies that we're expected to tolerate intolerance. Also not true. And we live in a reality world where men can be women. But that book with talking snakes, that's the reality. But our world, the, the world that we're living in, that's not the, re the, the real world. Now, we are tolerant of transgender people because the way that they live their lives doesn't affect how we live our lives. However, again, what you guys try to do on the right is you impose your religious views and try to get them codified into law. That affects how everyone else lives their lives, hence why you see the pushback frequently. And religious people persistently continue to push their religion 
on everyone else, not just socially, but politically and legislatively as well. And yes, I admit that I am mocking their religion here, but you'd think that Tommy Lahren, someone who popularized use of the word snowflake, would have thick skin and wouldn't be so easily offended or triggered by someone who dared to say something that they disagree with, but it looks like she's just as snowflakey as her millennial peers she frequently lambasts. So the reason why I think it's important to shine a spotlight on these right-wing SJW-triggered little snowflakes is because it's not just the left, it's not just kids on college campuses who get offended by the most benign comments ever, it's also right-wingers. So yes, SJWs on the left are definitely a problem, I'm not going to deny that, but we also have to acknowledge the reality of the situation, that there are a lot of SJWs on the right who also are just as easily offended. And look, if you think that Mike Pence claiming that Jesus talks to him isn't problematic, then you're the one living in a fantasy world. So stop getting offended by everything, snowflakes, uh, grow up, and have some thicker skin. That's what you tell us, right? Don't be offended by everything. Well, you should take your own advice, Tommy Lahren, and right-wingers generally speaking, because you guys are just as easily triggered at everything. So last week, 2012 Republican Party presidential nominee and loser Mitt Romney announced that he'd be running for the United States Senate in the state of Utah. Now, he already obtained the endorsement of President Donald Trump, even though he called Donald Trump a phony, literally, when Donald Trump was running. But nonetheless, Mitt Romney got the endorsement. But besides Donald Trump, it seemed like most Americans didn't seem to to care or give a shit at all about Mitt Romney running, and it's because we don't give a shit. Nobody cares. We don't like you, Mitt Romney. We rejected you in 2012. Go away. But unfortunately, if you lose a presidential election, you just can't take a hint that Americans aren't that into you. But, you know, there was something in Mitt Romney's announcement video that struck me, and honestly, it rubbed me the wrong way, so I couldn't not talk about it. So this in particular is something he said that I found interesting. Take a look. Given all that America faces, we feel that this is the right time for me to serve our state and our country. I ask for your support and your vote, and I look forward to meeting you over the coming year. If you give me this opportunity, I will owe the Senate seat to no one but the people of Utah. No donor, no corporation will own my campaign or bias my vote. And let there be no question, I will fight for Utah. So he says, quote, no donor, no corporation will own my campaign or bias my vote. And let there be no question, I will fight for Utah. Is that so? Fox Business News reports GOP mega donors backing Mitt Romney for Senate amid possible move up the leadership ranks. They explain in an exclusive interview with Utah Governor Gary Herbert, Fox Business was told that Romney, the 2012 Republican presidential nominee, will likely receive the backing of mega donors not just within Utah but across the country as he gets ready to announce his candidacy. He'll have a lot of support from the wealthy people that he knows from when he ran for president. The people on the same list of donors that he had before for 2012, including those from Utah, is a very good place for him to raise money, Herbert, a close friend and ally of Romney's, said. Now, this article was published before he announced that he'd be running for the United States Senate. But basically what his friend and ally is saying here is that he's probably going to have the same list of donors as he had in 2012, which that's a lot because he ran for president. He raised 
nearly half a billion dollars. So that's a lot of money potentially that he could tap into. So if you don't remember who Mitt Romney's 2012 donors were, allow me to refresh your memory. His top donors include Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, UBS AG, Blackstone Group, General Electric, Bain Capital, among others. And again, in the 2012 election cycle alone, he raised nearly half a billion dollars. He has a personal net worth of more than $200 million, but yet he had the nerve to claim this with a straight face. No donor. No corporation will own my campaign or bias my vote. <laughs> so he's pretending to be a right-wing populist, but let me remind Republican voters, what happened the last time when you voted for someone on the right who you thought was a populist? You got Donald Trump, and he turned out to be one of the biggest establishment stooges ever. So there's no such thing as a right-wing populist. It's an oxymoron. And I've got news for everyone in Utah. Mitt Romney is obviously not looking out for you. The fact that I have to say that is absurd to me. He literally changed his Twitter location from Massachusetts to Utah once Orrin Hatch announced his retirement. So he's nothing more than an opportunist. So if you plan on voting for Mitt Romney, you're voting for the Republican equivalent of Hillary Clinton, who's an even bigger sellout than Hillary Clinton, who's even more detached than Hillary Clinton. And that's difficult to achieve. So, I don't know if Mitt Romney is going to be elected, but let's all hope for the sake of the country that America rejects him once again, and, well, really, that people from Utah reject him, but they voted for him in 2012, so he may actually have a shot. But I think that Mitt Romney should do us all a favor and just retire. Once President Trump signed his tax reform plan into law, we had a lot of billionaires speaking out in favor of it because obviously it cuts their taxes. It puts more money in their pocket, even though they don't need more money because they're just sitting on billions of dollars. Well, they were excited nonetheless, and they're speaking out in favor of it. However, there's one billionaire who has decided to take a reasonable approach to this, and he stated that he's not really in favor of Donald Trump's tax reform plan. This is what Bill Gates had to say. Do you think in that context, the, the, the last tax bill made sense, where the benefits of the bill disproportionately went to people like you? Your basic point is correct. It was not a progressive tax bill. It was a regressive tax bill. People who are wealthier tended to get dramatically more benefits than the middle class or those who are poor. And so it runs counter to the general trend you'd like to see where the safety net is getting stronger and those at the top uh, are, are paying higher taxes. You'd be okay paying higher taxes? No, I need to pay higher taxes. Uh, I paid in absolute more taxes, over $10 billion, uh, than anyone else, but you know, the government should require the people in my position to pay significantly higher taxes. So I think that that's really important, so I want to repeat what he said. This is what a billionaire said. The government should require people in my position to pay significantly higher taxes. It's pretty much the, uh, the biggest no-shit Sherlock statement anyone can make ever, but 
It's so rare to have a billionaire who isn't brazenly greedy. It's rare, so that's why I want to shine a spotlight on it. Now, we shouldn't just increase Bill Gates' taxes because he's telling us to. I don't think we need their permission to do that. We should do it anyway, but nonetheless, the fact that he is coming out against Donald Trump's tax plan is really important because not very many billionaires are willing to speak out against it because obviously it benefits them. And really, this is something that I've always struggled to understand as a peasant. If you have $1 billion, if you have multiple billions of dollars, you've bought, you know, a mansion or two, you've bought the car of your dreams, you've bought your yacht, you have a vacation home somewhere, but then you still have a lot of money. How can you possibly spend all that money? You have everything you can ever dream of, and yet a lot of these billionaires, most of these billionaires are greedy. They want more. I don't get it. We need to live in a society where we take care of the poor. And the way that I always think about the way society should be set up is I use the example given to us by John Rawls, a political philosopher who came up with this notion of the veil of ignorance. Now, what the veil of ignorance is, is it's this hypothetical situation to where you are designing a society. You're creating social institutions, economic institutions, governments, you're setting up an international community. And during this process, as you're setting all of this up, you are removed from your traditional biases. You have no idea what your position will be in the society you're creating. You don't know if you're going to be poor. You don't know if you're going to be rich. You don't know if you're going to be gay, straight. You don't know if you're going to be born in a first world or third world country. You don't know what your position is going to be. Now, given that lack of information, how do you think most self-interested individuals would design society? They would make sure it was as equitable as possible because you don't want to design a society where the poorest of the poor can barely survive or they struggle, struggle to find water or food. You want to make sure that if you end up getting in the worst position possible, if you're born in a third world country that's poor, that life is going to be okay, that you're going to have the bare necessities and maybe then some. So this, to me, has always been a guiding principle. I mean, we can't undo what's already there, right? We can't start all over from scratch. But what we can do is envision what it's like for other people. Try to, try to exercise empathy and make sure that our world is set up in a way that is as equitable as possible so, so that way those in unfortunate situations who didn't have a choice, who were just born into that situation, don't have shitty lives. I mean, we have... A world where the president was born into wealth and then we have people in third world countries and even in the United States that can't afford to feed their children. I think that's really unfair. So if you were under this veil of ignorance, you would make sure that you're designing a society that doesn't screw over everyone. You would, you would make sure that we have everything we need and you wouldn't maximize the benefits people who are wealthy would already get. In fact, if you were in that predicament, you probably wouldn't even give people the ability to become disgustingly rich. But the problem is that empathy is difficult to come by. Politicians have no empathy, which is why this notion of the veil of ignorance is really interesting to me. It's because since we can't really be empathetic, the way that you get people to think in a way or to think about designing society in a more equi equitable fashion is to get them to consider their own self-interest. So we should just strive to make sure that everyone has 
an opportunity to move up the economic ladder so they never have to worry about food. That's the type of society we should have. However, these billionaires, they are completely detached from ordinary human beings. They have no conception of what's equitable. To them, a million dollars is not a lot of money. I mean, we heard Donald Trump say that when he was growing up, his father gave him a small loan of a million dollars. A million dollars is life-changing. So they have no conception of what normal Americans go through. They don't know what it's like to struggle to put food on the table. They don't ever have to worry about not being able to go to a doctor because they can't afford their copay, even if they have insurance. They don't know what it's like to have to call into work because you can't find a babysitter for your kids. So that's why when I see someone like Bill Gates come out and say, I should be paying significantly higher taxes, I think he's a deep thinker and I think that he's a moral person. Now, with that being said, you can make the case, not the shit on Bill Gates, that being a billionaire, generally speaking, is inherently problematic because you shouldn't have that much wealth. Nobody should have that much wealth. Now, thankfully, he's saying, I need to be paying more in taxes. Take more of my money so we can fund social safety net programs. He directly said that. So that's my two cents. It, you know, it's it's not too common when you see a billionaire say something that doesn't make him look like a smug, selfish asshole and a greedy pig. And we have one now with Bill Gates. So thanks, Bill. Um, <laughs> maybe if you have any billionaire friends, I'm sure you do, you can convince them to uh, adopt your worldview because, you know, maybe then they'd stop buying politicians and maybe we'd be in a better predicament. I don't know, but it's just, it's, it's a rarity to see a billionaire actually thinking about other people besides themselves. The now Our Revolution endorsed gubernatorial candidate from Ohio, Dennis Kucinich, proposed a plan to take on the oil and gas industry in the state of Ohio that is so powerful, so specific, that I couldn't not share it because I think that he's really creating a new standard that progressives should strive for if they are going to run for office. So Zaid Jalani of The Intercept reports, The boy mayor of Cleveland, who went on to serve nearly two decades in Congress, is running for governor on a platform of radical change to how the energy industry operates in the state. Freshwater and clean water are not negotiable issues, Kucinich told The Intercept, pointing to the water contamination associated with oil and gas drilling. They're not negotiable. In a press conference in late January, the Ohio Democratic gubernatorial candidate unveiled one of the most cutting-edge environmental platforms of any candidate in the country. Kucinich called for a total end to oil and gas extraction in the state of Ohio. To accomplish this, he would deploy a battery of radical policies. He would, for instance, utilize eminent domain to seize control of oil and gas wells throughout the state and then shutter them. He would block all new drilling permits and order a total ban on injection wells. Kucinich would also deploy the Ohio State Highway Patrol to stop and turn away vehicles that possess fracking waste. Under a Kucinich administration, Ohio would give subsidized health screens to residents living near fracking sites. That data would then be used to file a class action lawsuit against fracking companies, similar to how states took big tobacco to court in the 90s. Industry is less than happy about Kucinich's plan, to say the least. You don't say. <laughs> Yeah, um, to say that they're not happy with this is an understatement. Now, they're already, like, the minute he released this, 
Special interests are attacking him. We have the Chamber of Commerce in Ohio coming out saying, oh, well, this is a really irresponsible um, thing to propose because it's going to lead to hundreds of thousands of jobs lost. But Dennis Kucinich, unfortunately for them, is already a step ahead of them because he's proposing a way to create new jobs. And this is in a number of ways, but namely, he wants to fund infrastructure projects that will, in fact, um, spur job growth. So Dennis Kucinich is one of the few politicians in this country that has the courage to take on the industries who are well-funded, who buy off politicians, and he's not afraid to face them. He's not afraid to confront them, and he's not afraid to do what that state should have done a long time ago. Now, John Kasich basically opened the doors and allowed fracking companies to get in there and do what they wanted. He handed control over to them and said, ruin my state, I don't care. Uh, fuck it up, fam. <laughs> That's basically what happened. And now what Dennis Kucinich is trying to do is reverse all of that. And the things that he's proposing here, I mean, these are very specific goals. And it would make a huge difference. So you can really tell that he's serious about affecting change because he has a very specific plan. Now, when he was the mayor, he took on the electric industry who was ripping off citizens. And it was not very pretty. There was literally a hit out on him from the mafia that they put on him. It talks about it in this article, and it's mind-blowing. But yet he's doing this again to try to take on another industry. That's some bravery right there. I think that after something like that happened, most people would, you know, just hang it up. But he's not done. He's still fighting for us. So, again, Dennis Kucinich is one of the best progressives in the country, and I'm going to get ahead of myself here, even though I shouldn't, but if he is successful in this run to be the Ohio governor, what is he setting himself up for one day? A 2028 presidential run after Bernie Sanders served two terms. Now, <laughs> way ahead of myself, I know, but look, Dennis Kucinich is someone that we need. He's one of the few people in Washington, D.C. that isn't a lunatic, who actually cares about us, who's fighting for us, so this plan is absolutely commendable, and I really hope that a lot of progressives who are also running for Congress look at this plan and implement something of their own in their state. Now, I know that, you know, if you're running for office, you don't necessarily have the power to do all of this since he is running to be the governor, but, you know, to propose something like this, this is, this is powerful. So, I absolutely commend him for doing this. Well, that's all I got for you guys. I hope you all enjoyed the show. This was an extra long episode. But as usual, before we go, I want to take a moment to thank all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors. You guys are absolutely crucial to the show's existence, and I can never overstate just how uh, inspired I am by your generosity. Thank you all so much. Um, this will be the last episode in this Humanist Report studio. We are moving on to bigger and better things. So that means we're going to have a little break from the normal podcast. I'm still going to be posting videos um, and making more webcam uh, type videos, but you know what? I'm really excited uh, because, you know, the show's the show's growing, and that's thanks to all of you guys and your support, so thank you all so much. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the show. Take care.